Good morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Kairos and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our co-hosts, Lena Benabdella, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida, and Yiting Wang, our resident China sustainability specialist. Lena, Yiting, how are you ladies doing? Doing great. Excellent. Yiting, are you skiing today? Sorry, I just muted. Um, yes, I just finished some downhill skiing today oh, for the、man. second time in my life. The second time in your life? Well, I am so、It's、sorry、awesome. to, to to drag you away from such a wonderful activity for such a mundane podcast recording. But today's episode is pretty good, so thank you so much for making it.、Oh, this is way much better. <laughs> I I I like the sound of that. Yes, I agree. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers, professional development resources, and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Over the past few months, the United Nations Development Program (UNDP) in China has put out incredible Sino-Africa content. The 2015 report on sustainable development of Chinese enterprises overseas, which was co-authored by the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation under the Ministry of Commerce and the Research Center of the State-Owned Asset Supervision and Administration under the Commission of the State Council, which was released on November 9. In addition. They also released, "If Africa Builds Nests, Will the Birds Come?" comparative study on special economic zones in Africa and China, which was written in conjunction with the International Poverty Reduction Center in China and was released on December 17. To talk about those reports, we have invited onto the pod Hannah Ryder, the head of policy and partnerships for the UNDP in China. She leads a group of national international experts in UNDP to support China to cooperate practically and effectively. With other countries and develop its positions on various key international issues, including the post-2015 development agenda, China's climate change policy, and China's development cooperation, the group also provides analysis on China's key domestic policies and publishes the biannual China-specific human development report. Prior to her assignment in Beijing for the UNDP, Ryder worked in the United Kingdom's Department for International Development in London, where she specialized in climate change issues among other fields. She is a native of Kenya and holds degrees from both the University of London and the University of Sussex. Hannah, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. And are you taking a lunch break to get on the pod today? Uh, it's a little early for lunch, even though in China we often start lunch at eleven thirty. For me, I can't quite get with that.、Uh, that, despite being here for a year and a half, I still haven't adjusted.、Um, so I'll be having my lunch a bit later after the pod. And getting right into it, what were the major findings of the two thousand fifteen report on the sustainable development of Chinese enterprises overseas? What surprised you? Okay, so、um, this report we, as, as you mentioned, with is a is a report that we worked、uh, with our with some government counterparts on,、um, both from the Ministry of Commerce and also the regulator for the state-owned enterprises、um, here in China, and、uh, there were there were quite. 
we it was a it was a process which took quite a while um it was made up in particular of a uh, 200 just over 250 responses from companies uh, who have operations abroad and these companies we'd sent to them a survey of about 70 or so questions and through the through this through their responses to these questions, we were able to draw some analysis. And I should say 250 might not sound a lot, um, but actually in the context of Chinese companies, it's probably the, the most comprehensive, the largest survey of Chinese companies um, uh, that that has been pulled together Um so far, so it's a it's a good it's a very good starting point, and the fact that they are um, that they will all have operations overseas also tells us quite a lot. Um, so there were we we basically summarised the findings um, into into six key findings. The first one was that these companies have had some really positive impacts um, abroad, and I think this is something in which. Um, a lot of media reports uh, might say, well, what does that really mean? What do the positive impacts mean? Well, we talked about things like their contribution to uh, local taxes. Um, we talked about their contribution to building infrastructure and so on. Um, and so those are obvious, those are obvious, um, those are obvious benefits. The second finding was, however, that there are some challenges. And what we were able to do with this study is we were able to go into some quite quite detailed points about those challenges. So, for example, while we found that um, the we found two major challenges are uh, environmental management and uh, also making sure that local labor and local supply chains in terms of procurement are used um, for the host countries. Well, we were able to look at the fact that actually you find that many Chinese companies do actually deliver environmental impact assessments in order to do environmental management. But what they find most difficult is actually following them up. So we were able to go into quite a lot of depth there as well. Um, the third finding was that um, we found that government guidance we actually summarised uh, government guidance in this area in the report, and we put together, I think there were around 33 policies that we found. And the government guidance has actually been quite important. And we, we found that where a high correlation between whether uh, companies had performed better, for example, on things like employee safety and the government guidance, where they provided the most government guidance. Um, so that implied that government can continue to, should should continue to do, uh, to issue guidelines and so on, but even maybe make, uh, do even more sort of mandatory um, activities. We can come back to that. The fourth finding was that, that uh, the, the companies that tended to perform better were larger companies, perhaps not surprisingly, um, but also the companies that had been operating overseas over time for a longer time. So it implies that over time, Companies, Chinese companies, as they get more experience and perhaps as they grow, they will um, they will do even better. But it does also mean that the smaller companies and the newer companies do need more attention. Um, the fifth finding was that the areas that do need more attention geographically are um, 
Africa and Asia, the com- the com- the companies operating in those regions have the have the most difficulties uh, or perform least best. And finally, we found that um, uh, that there's actually very little literature which compares. And we found it we weren't able to do this in our own report, which really compares what the Chinese companies are doing with other foreign companies in the same in the same country. So this was a big gap, and we thought uh, that in future it would be an important area for study, so that um, perceptions are also um, kind of perceptions of Chinese companies are put in the context of actually what's what's going on in, in the rest of the country, not just with the Chinese companies. Um, so, so with those with those findings, I mean, we really came at the, we came at the analysis. We're trying to be as objective as possible. You know, we are we are the UN, and that was also why our, our government partners wanted to work with us. Um, but what we what we really wanted to do is really point out where the challenges were, as well as where the, as well as where the, the benefits were. And I think it, what perhaps was surprising was that that was fairly clear even from um, from those 250 or so responses. Uh, the analysis really had some quite strong correlations. All right, I had a question on the last point you mentioned seemed to be, um, you know, very important, um, the fact um, that there is a gap in the literature on um, comparing not just, you know, what Chinese companies are doing in different countries, but how they are faring compared to other companies in a similar context. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, A, you know, what do you have to say about, um, you know, what can be done, you know, by whom or, you know, what kind of uh, agents, actors can fill in, you know, the, the gap that you just uh, mentioned through the report? And B, what can we get from such a comparison? Uh, what, what would we hope to see from such a comparison? from having done this study is that really it, it's useful to agree to be able to compare the activities of, of, of Chinese companies across different countries because um, it's, it's almost an obvious point but what the host country's policy is on different issues really does matter. And so we were able to see that fairly clearly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you also have some further evidence which talks about what the non-Chinese firms, non-Chinese foreign firms were also doing, I think that would also be a point that would be that would be even more clear, um, and and one would be able to test that test that hypothesis. So we tested it in one way by doing a cross-country comparison. Um, Hannah, just on your um, key findings number two, um, you were saying that uh, there seems to be a correlation between where um, the Chinese policies have been mostly dense um, and where um, the practices are actually better. Um, so, you know, just wondering what type of interactions do you see between the government policies, regulations or notices or what have you? that are governing uh, the overseas operations with the Chinese companies, uh, the practices 
on the ground. Um, so, you know, given your your uh, correlation doesn't mean that um, in some areas are just simply a lack of policies being published. Um, but, you know, how actually policies are getting to the companies is just by the number or there's some other mechanisms that um, that companies actually get to adopt and then practice them um, in jurisdictions that the Chinese government actually do not have. So, yeah, this uh, is a really good question. Yeah, this is a very good question. Um, the basically, so we we put together, as I said, thirty three um, different policies from the from the government which which applied in this area to the to the overseas operations, and you found and what we found was a really wide range. So some of them are fairly sort of um, about principles. And, and they really stick mm-hmm. at the sort of principal level. And then others are more specific and have, um, have specific sort of punishment methods like fines or, um, or other types of, other types of, uh, uh, of punishments. So we, there really was quite a range. And um, we think that majority of the policies at the moment are voluntary um, but it is certainly possible and we would recommend that the government could publish even more laws um, with specific punishments um, in the future um, particularly on these on areas like environmental management and so on um, where where there, there hasn't been as much emphasis so far. Um, there, were, there really was a strong mm-hmm. emphasis that we saw on overseas safety management. Um, and that's not to say that the government hasn't provided policies in all of the areas. They have, but the biggest emphasis has been on the safety management side. Um, so mm-hmm. that said, I think another difficulty that the, that the government will also face and in in terms of thinking about uh, in terms of regulation, and this is why host countries are so important, is is that even if the government, even if the Chinese government does these things, um, so far the majority of enterprises that have gone out, or rather the ones that, that certainly responded to us, were a lot of state-owned enterprises. And it looks like as the as China's going out policy becomes even stronger there'll be more and more private enterprises going out, more and more smaller firms who will be harder to regulate and harder to keep an eye yeah. on. Um, so, so this will be a challenge. Um, what also happens, I should also mention, and we, we mentioned this in the report as well, is that the economic counsellor in in host countries, the Chinese economic counsellor, also play, plays quite an important role because the economic counsellor tends to they, they have the responsibility of drawing up uh, information, quite often very, very detailed information about the different rules and so on in the host countries. And this information is, is available publicly. It's on the Ministry of Commerce website um, here in China. It's all in Chinese. Um, you know, each country, probably 160 or so pages of information about what different rules there are in the host country. But there's a question about how much mm-hmm. take-up there is of this information. And actually, do, does the economic counsellor have the very, the, as 
that many strong relationships with the companies uh, when they go out onto the ground. It's easier to reach the state-owned ones, the bigger ones. It's more difficult to reach the smaller ones um, to provide them with this kind of information. So that will also be an important shift going forward um, for the economic counsellors as well um, to to see if they can become even more proactive with regard to with regard to the smaller companies. Um, and just a quick follow up on that, and I'm quite surprised at um, the finding that uh, very very few companies have reported. Um, their, you know, their operations being impacted by environmental concerns raised by local NGOs or, or local governments or media. Um, you know, even though we, you know, I think we every now and then we hear cases um, by other international NGOs or on the media news about, you know, environmental offenses or other social-related um, offenses. So, um, and I think I quite agree with you that, you know, it's probably first of all, this might not provide further incentive for the Chinese government to have any mandatory um, penalties on, on the companies um, with their environmental management overseas. But, um, and, and therefore, it's probably the honest um, would uh, be on the host country governments, right, in, in I guess, in enforcing their existing environmental regulatory systems or, or strengthening them to um, uh, to cope with the new kinds of challenges. So yes, and I think I think I think that's absolutely right. The 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 onus has to be mostly on the host country governments, um, but the the Chinese government I think can also play an an enabling role in the same um, the same for the the UN and other organisations. Um, the Chinese government has has the ability where it's where it's possible in some cases to be able to 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 regulate and so on and you know i think with this report and even in compiling all those policies i think the chinese government is saying they're really willing to help and 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 really make do their best to make sure that that um that there is uh, improved improvements in all of these areas but i think the the key issue um, the key issue is that the, the host countries' uh, regulations and so on do really differ, and how to improve the awareness of these differing requirements, the best practice standards. And so what we also suggested was not just for government to do something, but also even for the Chinese enterprises themselves because they care about their reputations. Um, and, and will increasingly do so as as their relationships build on on the local level. Um, they can also themselves share best practice and understand best practice. So this was also something that we really wanted to emphasise that every stakeholder has has a has a role to play um, and 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 can and can do something about about improving overall. Um, Chinese enterprises we found you know. Many of them have, there's a few great case studies, and we included some really good case studies, not only of Chinese enterprises doing really well, but also Chinese enterprises who sort of learned along the process, you know, started off not doing so well and, and, and changed the way they work. They had not initially, I think partly it's a, I wonder whether it's also 
the way that the Chinese system works here in China, you know, you you will interact more with the local government than you'll interact with the civil society. Um, and I think many Chinese enterprises, when they went, when they go abroad, they will prioritize in interacting with the government rather than necessarily interacting with civil society. But that's obviously not what happens, not the case, uh, not the way uh, in some cases um, for many countries. Civil society is much louder, much more of an important um, of an important partner. So there's a bit of learning process. And as I said, you know, the longer that the Chinese companies operate abroad, the more that they understand what that interaction means and how to get the best out of it. Um, so, so I think we'll see more and more of that happening and in more more sophistication. Um, but as you say, they, they, this is a baseline, right? This is, this is where they are at the moment. So it's good to at least know that. And I, I want to quickly add on, on that. So it, it seems that almost everything related to sustainability involves voluntary measures, that there is nothing mandated by Chinese law or, or Chinese financial institutions to improve sustainability, as in, if you break these regulations, your export credits will get cut, or your loan, you won't get a tranche of your loan dispersed. Is that an issue, and is it even possible to make such changes? And I'm asking specifically in relation to the U.S., we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which, and there's a lot of ink spilled about how efficient and how useful it is, but a lot of companies are very aware of it in the U.S. and what they can and can't do. Is the legal route the way to go? And if, if that's something that you can't answer, that's totally fine. Yeah, well, this is, this is an interesting point because one of the things that we found from the study, and I guess another surprising point, was that one of the major reasons why many of the firms, the Chinese firms, actually do complete environmental impact assessments and social impact assessments is that it is required by the finances, the the Chinese development finances. So we found that, so around 75%, Many of the, most of the finance that's provided for the firms to go out is provided by Chinese development finances, like the uh, China Development Bank or the Exim Bank, right? And they do have those requirements to do these impact assessments. Um, so it there is there is some degree of mandatory um, of of, uh, of some mandatory requirements. Um, but nevertheless, and, and there are examples in the past, we didn't include them in the, in the study, there are examples in the past of um, certain um, loans not going through or, um, or, or companies being able to, to continue um, and, until, they, until they change a, a particular practice. But nevertheless, it certainly is an area to explore. And I think... Our government counterparts that we spoke to are very interested in in finding out what other kinds of regulations other countries have and exchanging a bit more information about that. So if it is that the the U.S. 
firms operating abroad, for example, you know, really do pay attention to that, um, the, the, the Foreign Practices Act, then this is something which, um, which the Chinese government would be very interested in uh, knowing and, and looking at and seeing how it could be applied uh, in, in the Chinese context, um, given Chinese characteristics. Um, and maybe there's some others um, from other countries as well. So um, they're certainly in a, in a place where they are open to ideas. And, um, and, and we hope that through this process of working con continuously with them, we'll be able to share those sorts of ideas. Excellent, excellent. Now let us discuss your latest report. If Africa builds nests, will the birds come? Comparative study on special economic zones in Africa and China. What were your major findings and did anything surprise you? So, uh, this report we uh, decided to do because the issue of industrialization has really risen up the global agenda, and in particular in the in the African agenda, and um, and we have uh, a partnership with an organisation called the International Poverty Reduction Centre in China, and uh, this this centre provides a lot of training for government officials from from African countries, but also elsewhere. And one of the issues that they've been bringing up consistently when they're doing this training is we want to know about China's experience on industrialisation. And, you know, and, you know, China's experience on industrialization, China is the greatest manufacturing powerhouse right now. So, you know, it's a very positive one to, to be building on. So we wanted to we wanted to do this study because what we also realized was that it's important to think about it also objectively in the sense that African countries themselves have had a long history of um of having special economic zones too. In fact, the special economic zones um, that that China instituted, which were one of the main success factors for its positive industrialization experience, those special economic zones were something which existed in African countries in the 1970s, well before China. Um, so that was that was one of the that was a key reason for. Uh, trying to not just in a, in the very normal simple way just summarize China's experience, which I think many organisations tend to do. It's actually comparing it um, and trying to draw out then the different. Um, what we wanted to do was also in the same way that we did with the previous study for the special for the uh, Chinese businesses, draw out recommendations that lots of different stakeholders and actors could could take forward. So, so um, you asked about a surprising, the, the, the major findings and what surprised about the report. Um, in terms of the major finding, I think, can really be summarized is um, we had, we, we, we tried to summarize the things that are really important um, to making these special economic zones successful. Um, based on the African experience and the fact that the African experience had not been so positive, despite being longer than China's experience, um, and also based on the fact that uh, of what was actually what was successful within China specifically, um, 
And we, we did a few case studies as well to bolster that so that we looked at this in a much more in much more detail. So we found that um, things like high-level political commitments um, to industrialization and to use the special economic zones really matter. Um, whereas and and in a country like Ethiopia, that that uh, commitment is really strong. But then you found, you know, in a country like Nigeria, the um, political commitment was there to some level. But then there were there were um, uh, disagreements between different levels between the federal and the state system and so on. So those complications can be can be fairly um, can can be difficult to deal with, but are important to iron out at, right at the beginning. Um, we also found that uh, the things like infrastructure really matters. Um, we we recommended in the end that uh, we should have. That ideally, choosing a, a zone, a special economic zone in a place where there is already really good infrastructure, is is ideal because um, that was certainly China's experience. But obviously, that's going to be difficult in some African contexts because infrastructure just isn't there. So we did also uh, we did recommend um, that infrastructure should be an initial priority for the. For the for the special economic zones, there were another. Um, we also one of the I think perhaps one surprising finding that I'll just um, that I'll I guess I'll finish off with is that um, one of the and, and I think it's not really well understood actually is that one of the really important experiences from China is that China really emphasised the use of um, joint ventures um, in its special economic zones. So what I mean by that is any time a foreign company did want to set up in China in the special economic zone, it needed to partner with a Chinese company. And actually those policies still exist here now in China. Um, and many host countries do not do that at the moment um, with the special economic zones. And um, we found that that, is, that can be difficult and in terms of developing local knowledge, developing local jobs, local um, supply chains as well. So we, did, we have recommended as well that um, this, it's a very specific point, but we do think it's actually fairly fundamental <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that, that things like those joint venture mechanisms are things that are really promoted by the host country governments, um, as well as uh, as well as even by the Chinese companies and, and finances of these special economic zones going forward. And I want to stop you right there and, and point out that's one of the most crucial things when understanding uh, China's economic miracle. A lot of uh, people in the U.S. in terms of how they think of uh, Chinese SEZs think that. China snapped its fingers, said there shall be special economic zones, and then by the next day, China became the second largest economy in the world, but did not realize that to actually enter into the Chinese market, you had to form a, um, a, a joint venture with a Chinese company, share technology, share experience. And it's yeah. not just that a, China, that a foreign company could operate willy-nilly in China. The Chinese government was, was quite adept at, at 
managing uh, foreigners and, and foreign enterprises. And that's one of the things that I, I really liked about, about this report was uh, out of the many excellent recommendations, uh, that recommendation in particular. Yeah, it's it's an important one. Mm. And, and related to that, and that was sort of a comment slash question that I had, I mean, it seemed to me it kind of, a lot of this, the success of the SUVs um, hinges upon the issue of governance and willingness and also, as you put it in the report, the vision of the local governments of what they want to see and how they want to achieve the goals they have um, of development, financial opening and all of that. And it, it just seems to me like it's sort of a big elephant in the room, right? Um, you know, whether these host governments have the willingness, A, and B, the, 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 the capability of establishing these joint ventures, I mean, seems to be a big deal. So, um, you know, whether it's SEZs or, or, or other forms um, or projects of development, we come back to this question of governance. We come back to this question of how willing, you know, these governments or elites or leaders are to, uh, you know, put in the vision and the, and, and, and the capacity it takes uh, to actually success, you know, successfully implement these SEZs and uh, Sort of another thing that ties back to this is yeah, your point about the need to adapt, you know, not certainly just only learn or copy the model from China, but also just to adapt it according to the needs of the local context. I mean, this also yes. seems to come back to the idea of well, yeah, the, the, the willingness, you know, the political willingness, the uh, capability and the ability to do it. And, uh, you know, do you have any insights about how to circumvent this or how to go about this? Well, I, I think it's a very important point because, you know, a lot of the time in terms of, I think there is certainly at the moment on the continent a very strong political will, willingness to deliver on in, industrialization, right? I mean, we have in, in Africa, there are currently around, you know, 300 million young people, uh, and that is going to increase to over 500 million by 200, by 2030. You know, there is, that is, that's a big challenge, and a lot of them are currently unemployed. So industrialization is certainly seen as a way of um, dealing with that, with that issue. Um, so I think there's a broad political willingness, but I think what is then more difficult is when it comes down to the nitty gritty of even being willing to take the attitude that China had of we are going to impose these restrictions on foreign capital um, or, or on foreign, foreign investment um, in order to get what we want out of this relationship. And I think many host country governments don't have that kind of confidence um, that, that China had. And, and I think they face a lot of, um, 
a lot of a lot of push to be as open and, and and as possible, which is good, obviously, to be as open as possible. But the typical advice on um, that that might come from some directions is, you know, have very low taxation requirements mm-hmm. in the special economic zone. You know, don't be as open as possible to whichever kind of foreign capital comes in. Don't put the joint ventures in there. You know, really just be as deregulated as possible. But China's experience says, no, regulation actually can be very helpful. And I think that's where the difficulty will be for the for the d- d- determining success and um, right, right. and, and, and failure, may, right? Right. If, if I may follow up there, I mean, there's there's this, this whole big ghost of race towards the bottom type of, uh, you know, argument there mm. is that you know, the weaker the state states are, or the later, you know, the, 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 they come to this game, you know, the more fragile they are, and all they can do is try to compete for FDI. Try co- so perhaps, you know, that does not make them the best bargainers, you know, by definition. Um, you know, yeah. so that's probably something else to navigate there. Sure, um, you know, but we have to realize... Game. But but they are not. They don't have to be. They don't have to be the worst bargainers in this situation. They're actually in a real position of power. Um, for example, with regard to China, um, Chinese companies want to go to to. They want to go out. They want to be manufacturing in other countries mm-hmm. um, because the labor costs in China are rising. So, you know, knowing what their comparative advantage is, which is their labor cost, their low labor cost, um, is is actually very helpful and a very, you know, and obviously they can also get to know it in even more detail than just low labor cost. But uh, just having that understanding that that's one of the main factors mm. driving that shift. And it's not just a shift, it's a, it's a transformation within China that is driving that shift, a transformation from manufacturing to kind of innovation value-added type so, um, type economy. So they don't have to be in a low bargaining position at all. Um, so and, and they can easily justify those measures in the sense that they can point to China's experience. They can say, look, these are the things you guys did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And, and they can also do that with regard to with regard to other um, other foreign firms too. So I think there's a there's certainly the potential for being that confident. And I also think um, one of the areas that we also made a very strong recommendation around was around environmental management. Again, based on China's experience, because you know um, we know that environmental degradation has been one of the major challenges of industrialization in China. And China's now having to deal with that and clean that up. And, you know, of course, it was certainly worthwhile, but in terms of the economic growth, but it is a difficulty. And so we have, we really made, um, we made it very clear that we think that environmental management should be a very clear um, uh, kind of regulation area for the host countries. And um, and if China itself can also cooperate with the host countries, for example, to help them to develop uh, renewable energy that's powering the special economic zones, that would be excellent as well and would be another sort of win-win area for China and African mm-hmm. cooperation. 
I remember noticing your emphasis on the environment. It's uh, what on page sixty, and you're and you made a very economic argument that it's cheaper to it's cheaper to set good environmental safeguards now than to clean up later. And and I thought mm-hmm. that was a, a very sly argument on your part. <laughs> it's been made by many others. <laughs> yes. Uh, <okay. laughs> you know, look at the Stern Review <laughs> back in 2006. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's also going to always cost more upfront. Sometimes it will be more upfront costs, right, to employ... Um, better, cleaner, and more efficient technologies. Um, and I think you still hear Chinese investors making their argument about, oh, and as a poor country, they can't afford this um, right now, that maybe later in the later stage, they will care more about the environment. So, you know, I, I just think you still hear this sort of environmental curtain and curve uh, arguments um, that some of the Chinese companies and even Chinese officials would make. Um, but obviously, knowing also that the, the heavy price that we ourselves have paid. Mm-hmm. Those, those sets of arguments are, are still there. And I don't, it's not just Chinese firms that make those arguments. I think there's many others that do still. Um, but I think mm-hmm. slowly, slowly people are being proved. Those, those arguments are slowly being discredited. Um, and I think it also partly depends on your starting point. So if your starting point is very low energy access, which many African countries have right now, um, and intermittent energy access, then it's not necessarily clear that there will always be a much higher upfront cost from uh, from installing renewable energy generation. Um, also because it, it, it depends on exactly where the, where the energy generation is, who's in charge of it, is it for the special economic zone specifically, or is it for a much wider area, all those sorts. There's so many different calculations that come into it that I think simplifying it to say it will always be more expensive to put in the renewable energy, I think uh, is, is an oversimplification. But it would be good to be to be looking at these things empirically, and it's worthwhile doing so empirically, I would think. Right. No, I think that's where your recommendations come in handy, um, is that I think um, presenting um, these options or even, you know, with potentially with a mandate to look at different um, infrastructure options and energy supply options, given the circumstances mm. that these um, zones are located, right, Um that that will be more uh, I'll be wiser, of course. Um, so I had an, another comment. Um, uh, I think interesting um, things that I get out of your report is that, um, and it seems that the Chinese involvement in Africa's SEZ development has um, played a very uh, sort of enabling but also complementary role in in circumstances. Um, so. Uh, like you mentioned, um, uh, in some in, in Ethiopia, for example, um, the investors um, were very interested in the SEZs because of the European Union's everything but arms arrangement and then the U.S. Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Um, that you know these have been a, it provides a constant uh, impetus to 
actually expanding these economic zones and building it up because there are actually a lot of tax benefits and trade benefits associated with doing business in Africa. Uh, and in another case, uh, you, the report mentions um, that um, the China um, provides the financing and also the uh, knowledge transfer and the technology transfer to the, um, the SEZ in Ethiopia, while the World Bank um, provided a lot of the, in the initial um, sort of technical support as well as financing to set up the uh, infrastructure of, of the industrial park. Um, so, and it seems that um, there really are different um, niches by uh, that has been performed by different development players in Africa in making sure that these uh, SEZs work. Yes, that's for sure, and and I think we can con we can expect that that will continue because, um, you know, the the partners that we work with, for example. As I mentioned earlier on, the International Poverty Center uh, for China um, is is going to be continuing to do training and exchange um, of for for African government officials on this area. Um, there's universities who are interested in this. We actually launched our report um, at a training which was organised by Tsinghua University. Um, and uh, and then there's also as the the big the big development is in the as at the FOCAC summit where um, the there was a production capacity cooperation fund that was announced and it's going to have ten billion um, US dollars associated right. with it. So that will be really important to track as will you know the existing funds in this area and the existing development actors as you mentioned the China Africa Development Fund, the China Development Bank itself, um, and so on. So we'll we'll have to, it's certainly an area to, to watch. And again, we wanted to make sure that we also had some recommendations for the Chinese government that they could, that, that it could take forward in this area, um, just because it, it, it feels like an area of really real opportune um a real opportunity for for further cooperation and deeper cooperation. Um, so so that's why that's why we also focused on that. Fantastic. And does anyone have any follow up questions? Nope, I'm good. All right. And before we move on to recommendations, it seems that every month, Hannah, your office puts out a must-read China-Africa report of some sort or another. What upcoming reports should our audience be on the lookout for? Um, well, thank you very much for that, um, for, for that compliment. Um, we, we have definitely been trying to increase our output over the last, um, over the last year. Uh, and our reports, some of them do focus on China-Africa, other, others have, are much broader but do have the African implications, and we really try to make sure that the regional implications are brought out uh, in most of them. So um, we, hope that, we hope that there'll be plenty, plenty more coming in. Um, but just to mention uh, what will be something, a couple of things to look out for. 
see, 2016 is going to be quite a quite a big year. You see, China's going to be G20 president. There's going to be a One Belt, One Road summit. Um, so these are also going to be shaping our reports and so on. Um, we have something coming out on uh, China's South-South Cooperation on Climate Change. Um, so having kind of quite probably quite useful given we've just talked about some of the environmental um, issues with regard to cooperation. Um, so that will that should be coming out quite soon. And I think when we had many African countries who contributed to the study um, and African countries will continue to be a focus of that kind of support. So we hope that will be of interest. Um, and then we're also going to be taking forward some of these initiatives, some of these reports into sort of practical initiatives. Um, our office, we don't just do reports, we also do sort of practical work, trilateral cooperation, we call it. Um, and most of what we've done so far and will be continuing to do is government to government trilateral cooperation. So projects between China, projects between China, uh, UNDP and a host country government. Um, we have about uh, seven or so projects in this area at the moment. Um, but we will, we want to do some more practical cooperation between Chinese businesses and helping the Chinese businesses to do to do good um, when they go abroad. And we'll also be um, and that's going to be through something called the um, Sustainable Development of Chinese Enterprises Overseas Alliance, um, which we hope to launch in 2016. So look out for that too. And uh, and then we'll also be we've just launched our support for something called the Made in Africa initiative which is going to be taking forward some of the recommendations on the special economic zone development um, and uh, actually providing some bespoke advice to different countries about their industrialization strategy and trying to, to really make that happen and facilitating visits and so on to the different special economic zones in different African countries. So, so again, look out for that too. It will be really in 2016, I think, a mix of the, of the, of the practical and the further, hopefully, must-read reports. <laughs> it sounds amazing. That's a basketball. We'll be sure to have you yeah. back on the pod many mm -hmm. times. I yes. look forward to doing that. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Uh, this has been a spectacularly long pod, so we're going to segue comfortably into the recommendation section. Hannah, what recommendations do you have for our listeners? Ah, um, well, I have I have one recommendation, which is to listen to the um, McKinsey podcast. It's a very short podcast, McKinsey China podcast. Um, they're one of the podcasts I discovered this um, this year, as well as Carries and Rice. Um, and this one, that one's a very short one. <laughs> that one's a very short one. Uh, Twenty minute. Um, predictions for 2016 and I just think it's um it was interesting because it, it goes through a whole range of range of areas but it's always interesting to think about the international implications of what's happening within China that's always a lens that I try and bring to it so I'd recommend that others also do that too excellent mm. and Lena what about yourself so I would like to um point our audience to the um, 
this documentary that um, Al Jazeera had uh, put out, The African Business in China, it's called. Um, and so the documentary actually follows a, an entrepreneur from DRC, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who um, is on a trip to China for like three weeks uh, where she needs to make purchases to refurbish, re refurnish her restaurant back in DRC. Um, what I really, really like about this documentary, and I don't know if this is something that has consciously been pointed out or unconsciously, is that it just points out sort of a gender component to the China-Africa business thing, which may be a little bit understudied when it comes to uh, scholarship, right? And so a lot of these entrepreneurs that uh, are featured in the documentary are women. Um, and a lot of them uh, have these opportunities to go to China and do retail and, you know, buy wholesale and take it back to um, to their home countries. And uh, we don't get enough of that sort of the gender component of China, Africa, which I thought the Al Jazeera documentary really did very well. Um, so that's my recommendation. Lovely and a very important point to make that we will definitely be exploring further as the pod evolves. But yeah, gender, China, Africa, we don't look at it that much, mm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eating, what about yourself? Um, I don't have recommendations today. I just want to say that a good friend of mine followed your recommendation in the previous pod about um, getting uh, Professor Deborah Bradigan's Well, Africa Feed China book as a Christmas gift for me. So there you go. <laughs> that is the best friend ever. And was that friend Santa Claus or Father Christmas by any chance? <laughs> I have to double check if it's tax Santa Claus. And I have three combined recommendations. Two are uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, my buddies, um, uh, Moritz Weigel and Alex Demis, Demise, name, uh, China Africa blog, their Twitter handle, China Africa blog. And they are doing really good stuff tracking One Belt, One Road. And then another Twitter colleague of mine, Richard Humphreys, his uh, Twitter handle is Richard Humphrey One. He's doing uh, excellent stuff on, on Southern Africa trade, but he's putting up some really good information on One Belt, One Road. And finally, there was this piece I read that, oh, man, it was um, really interesting. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's, it talks about One Belt, One Road in a way that um, a lot of people don't talk about it. It's on the Hong Kong Free Press. It's called One Belt, One Road, A Faustian Deal That Nobody Will Sign in Public by Timothy Ning. N-G, I'm sorry, I do not have to pronounce Cantonese names. But essentially, it's a very anti-One Belt, One Road piece that talks about the political ramifications in a way I haven't seen explored in uh, one piece of writing. And... One Belt, One Road is something that anyone interested in Chinese foreign policy should keep a lookout for and keep track of those two Twitter handles and read this piece to look at its different permutations. And that's basically all I'm going to recommend. I should mention that um, your colleagues on uh, 
China Africa blog helpfully contributed to the special economic zone study. Um, so hopefully that gives another reason to, to follow them too. I, so I'm, I've been trying to drag them on this podcast for a month and like every time I see their name, like, oh my gosh, you guys wrote this stuff. Get on my pod and talk about this. But they're very shy. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I can tell the, the quality of the special economic zone report, it just shone through. And I, can, and I definitely could tell they had a hand in it. It was China Africa blog. They're great people. Uh, yes. And before we sign off, how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? Uh, so for me, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, hmrider, uh, and that's also uh, WeChat, Weibo, Skype—all the same handle. Um, and uh, we also have the UNDP China website, um, and so that uh, is www.undp. Uh, org and um, you can just find China from there. Um, there's a there's a box for all the different countries, and uh, we have a special section which is focused on the South South Cooperation um, and Global Cooperation. So you can keep up to date specifically on that. But I also blog on that website. Um, but the easiest way really is Twitter. HM Rider. Lovely, Lena. What about yourself? Um, also easily um, found on Twitter. Uh, my account handle is uh, L as in Lena, uh, L Ben Abdallah. And uh, I tweet China Africa stuff uh, and beyond. Wonderful. Eating. What about yourself? Uh, Twitter as well. It's at uh, uh, Dao of the Pool, uh, D A O O F T H E P O O H. Uh, I treat uh, sustainability at large and China Africa in particular. Wonderful. And when you tweeted that you got the book from Professor Brodingham, she actually <laughs> responded. So I just want to give you a. Uh, I know. She liked it. She retweeted it and she responded. She did everything she could. I was thrilled. I wanted just to give you a uh, podcast high five <laughs> for the excellent tweet. Yay! Um, and I myself can be found on carriesrice.blogspot.com and www.carriesrice.com. The latter site houses my fledgling China Africa consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I tweet about China African news, events, opinions, and arcana. And that is about it for today's episode. We'd like to thank Hannah for joining us this afternoon, as well as African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We're also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for Macomb, Illinois, to share a podcast. We'd also like to thank Mighty Michael Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. <laughs>